Tonight, straight from the source, a first move by one of Trump's co-defendants in Georgia, his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, now seeking to move the prosecution against him to a federal court in hopes of getting it dismissed. Will it work? We'll see. As for Trump's next move, it's a lot like his previous ones. He is now claiming, finally, he has the evidence to prove the election was stolen when he has failed to do so for nearly three years. Also tonight, there is growing desperation and frustration being felt throughout Hawaii a week after the deadly wildfires broke out. People are still missing, fires are still burning, and families are still waiting for word on their missing loved ones. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, we are learning new details following last night's indictment, including on where Donald Trump will likely be surrendering. The Fulton County Sheriff's Office says that he is expected to be booked at the Fulton County Jail. The big question tonight, of course, is still when. The Sheriff's Office said in a new statement that it is expected all 19 criminal defendants named in the new indictment will be booked there. There are 10 more days for this group to voluntarily turn themselves in. Jail's open 24-7. The Sheriff's Office says they can come whenever they want. In the meantime, Trump is focusing on proving claims that he has been making without basis for nearly three years now. The former president is now promising to finally reveal evidence next Monday about his election fraud claims. Maggie Haberman has reporting on what's behind those so-called plans and she'll join me in just a moment. It's important to note though, Trump's claims have never been proven in any venue or any courtroom. That's something that the Georgia governor, Brian Kemp, noted today after Trump teased that news conference, saying, quote, the 2020 election in Georgia was not stolen. Meanwhile, Trump's attorney turned co-defendant Rudy Giuliani weighed in today on when he expects to turn himself in. I'll pick a day next week, try to work out the conditions of bail, because there has to be bail. I'm anxious to fight this case. I woke up this morning more excited than I have in weeks. He said, why? Because I got a fight on my hands and a justifiable one. We're gonna, we're gonna beat these fascists into the ground. I'm the same Rudy Giuliani that went after the mafia. I haven't changed one bit. Except he has. He is now on the other side of the law that he used to jail mobsters as a federal prosecutor. Meanwhile, Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, is now the first of the co-defendants to try to get his portion of this case moved from a state court to a federal court. His legal team is now arguing tonight that charges in the indictment pertain to actions he took while he was serving in the White House. And they intend to submit, they say at a later date, why the case against him should be dismissed under federal law. I'm joined tonight by Maggie Haberman of The New York Times, also the author of Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Maggie, I mean, Trump is, I feel like we've seen this movie before where he is promising to finally reveal something that he has been teasing especially the election fraud claims that have never been borne out. But you have new reporting on what's behind what we're expecting to see on Monday. So Jonathan Swan, my colleague, and I reported earlier today that aides and allies of Trump woke up this morning several hours after this indictment was filed, accusing him of trying to subvert the 2020 election as part of a conspiracy to discover that he had posted on Truth Social saying he has a major news conference on Monday where he's going to release a report. Now, that report in question turns out to refer to a document uh, crafted or in you know, created at least in part by Liz Harrington, a Trump communications aide, and it refers to Georgia and it is going to address what she is, I think, and whoever she was working on it with going to argue was widespread fraud. Now, we know those claims have been debunked over and over and over. Brian Kemp, the state's governor, 
again tried to denounce this today and said the election was not stolen. Let's move on. The reason the presence of Liz Harrington is interesting is that she is connected to a key scene in the documents indictment where Trump is waving around, according to prosecutors, a classified document or a secret document, as he refers to it, that he acknowledges he could have declassified as president. And she is one of the women quoted in the recording of that, we have been told by multiple sources. Whether this actually happens remains to be seen. So the person who is named in one of the other indictments that is facing him is now helping him respond to this latest indictment. Correct. And it speaks to the way that world works right now. A number of the people who are around him, either as advisors or as lawyers or, you know, all kinds of other people, are connected to these cases in various ways. They are witnesses in some cases. Uh, You know, Rudy Giuliani is clearly co-conspirator number one in the federal uh, indictment against Trump uh, related to uh, January 6th and trying to uh, overturn the election results, and he is indicted in Georgia. And so it just creates this culture that we've just never seen before. There are so many co-defendants listed in this new indictment, which, I mean, immediately made me think of the concern that he has about the potential for them to, to, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities for people to cooperate here. There are, and he is aware of that, and it is one of the things that uh, I believe has concerned him about this indictment, also the fact that it is in state court. It is not something he could control if he becomes president again, although I think there's an argument as to whether a state case would actually go forward against a sitting president uh, the way this is. But yes, these are this is many-tentacled. It's big. Uh, there are a lot. It's voluminous, and there's a lot of allegations in it. And there are a lot of people connected to it, not all of whom are in his direct orbit. That's the other thing to bear in mind. Yeah, the second half of that list is all like Coffee County uh, officials who aren't, you know, directly connected to him. Mark Meadows is, though. I mean, and to see his name, as I was reading through it when it first got released last night, like reading Mark Randall Meadows, I mean, just stood out. He hasn't been indicted in the other cases. He's now the first one to try to say, well, I was just fulfilling my official White House duties, and that's why he's trying to get it moved to a federal court here. It's an argument that I expect that former President Trump will make, too, which is that they were acting under the color of their jobs and that this is something that should belong in uh, federal court because of that. Uh, I'm not surprised to see Meadows make that argument. Like you, it was striking to see his name in this indictment because his name has been at the center of this whole issue as it's been investigated for the last two and a half years. But you are correct. He was not one of the co-conspirators mentioned, as best as we could tell who they were, in the Jack Smith indictment. He has not been charged federally. He has been much less of a presence than we are used to around Donald Trump. And he is one of the people about whom I think Uh, The former president is the most concerned about what they may or may not have said. Certainly a lot of aides around Trump are concerned about what he may or may not have said in various investigations. Yeah. And also the questions of how that affects what Jack Smith is trying to do, clearly, if he's trying to use him. The other thing, you know, just reading through the indictment, a lot of it is like is things that we knew that had happened or what they did. But also I was just struck the 12 of the 161, you know, overt acts, as Fonnie Willis referred Mm -hmm. to them, were Trump's tweets. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And public, and, and then others were public statements. Yeah. yeah, I mean, these are this is. Look, we talked about this a lot with the tweets that they were just things he was doing. There was that joke about you know I was about to write a story and Trump just tweeted it out. Right? I mean, this was literally they were planning all these actions and Trump just tweeted it out. Uh, you know, their argument is going to be the Trump teams that this is free speech and that he had a right to say all of these things. And Fonnie Willis's argument is that individual actions don't have to be criminal on their own, but part of a broader conspiracy, which is what she's charged. They are. It is why Trump's aides and lawyers over a very long period of time 
wanted him to stop tweeting the way he did and, you know, would like him to do less truth social posting the way he is now. It just doesn't get heard the way it used to. Yeah, and he's but he's announcing, you know, I've got this huge press conference that, as you're reporting, is a lot of people didn't know about. Uh, one question that I had last night thinking on this is how this affects what he's doing with the debate. I mean, before this, we were told he's not going to, he's not showing up to the debate next Wednesday. But now that he's got this time crunch to to turn himself in to actually show up in Fulton County. Do you think that could change the calculus at all that he has? He has two days until after the debate to turn himself in, technically. I think that he is likely to stick to a plan. There's been some discussion today about will this be like right after the Access Hollywood tape in October 2016 when he went to St. Louis to debate Hillary Clinton, and that that set him back on a, on a path toward winning But his whole campaign was riding on that debate, as one former aide pointed out to me this morning correctly. That's not the case here in terms of the primary. I think it could impact his impulse to defend himself. I still think it's unlikely that he shows up. But again, it's him. You never really know until he does or doesn't do it. You've covered New York politics for a long time. You've covered Rudy Giuliani for a long time. I mean, you have seen him go from this heroic figure to him today saying he's going to beat the fascist into the ground, I believe was the quote that he used. I mean, what do you make of the fact that the racketeering law he used to use to prosecute members of organized crime here in New York is now being used against him in Fulton County? For people who dislike Rudy Giuliani, of which in New York politics and among New York voters, New York City voters, there are many, um, they, they feel as if this is the ultimate irony. For people who really liked Rudy Giuliani and thought he was a good mayor, they feel as if this is a tragedy. I, it is surreal hearing him say that he's really excited about this indictment because I can't imagine that he ever thought it would be fun or engaging or a fun fight to be accused of racketeering. I mean, this is somebody who was a a renowned national figure for busting mobsters using a similar law, uh, and and that he has, in in a quest basically to be relevant, to stay around former President Trump, ended up here, um, is very upsetting to the people who still care about him. I mean, he's also running out of money. I mean, CNN's I, I don't reporting. know about running out. I think might be out. He may be out. I mean, he's yeah. putting up his apartment here yep. in New York for six point five mm-hmm. million dollars in a sign. Of, I mean, and that's not going to end. He, he, he has more cases even just this week alone, I believe, when it comes to his law license and the comments he made in Georgia. One of the ironies right now in the situation around Donald Trump is you will hear some of his advisors say he's really upset that Rudy got indicted or leading into this. He was really worried about Rudy, but not so worried that he was going to pay Giuliani's legal bills. And this has been an issue over and over and over again. And people who are still close to Giuliani will try to blame the Republican National Committee or this former aide to Trump or this person. This is Trump. Uh, According to my reporting, it was Trump who didn't want Giuliani paid unless Giuliani delivered on his promises. And obviously that didn't happen. Maggie Haberman, it's never going to end. Well, something will, everything will end eventually, (laughs) but but this this part not right now. On that lighthearted note, thank you so much, Maggie. All right, from a bail bondsman to a former publicist for Kanye West, we're going to look at the 18 others who have been charged alongside Trump in the state of Georgia. And four indictments, four jurisdictions, and four-plus months. Is there a way out for Donald Trump? We'll talk about that with legal analysts next. This is the reality for Donald Trump. Indictment after indictment after superseding indictment. The stack of legal problems keeps growing for Donald Trump. But what is different here? In Georgia, the new indictment that we got last night is the scope here. It's not just in the law, but it's also in the number of people that are involved. There are names you know, people you would recognize, like Trump's former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. 
the former mayor of New York turned personal attorney Rudy Giuliani, as well as other attorneys who you saw frequently on TV or around the Oval Office in the days after the 2020 election. But then there are other lives that have now been forever altered by their connection to Donald Trump in that time, like the president of a swimming pool company, a police chaplain, a mixed martial arts fighter. They are all now accused of taking part in this criminal enterprise. Prosecutors claim that the corrupt organization that was reached not just from the Oval Office, but all the way to the former publicist of Kanye West and even a bail bondsman who was caught on tape trying to access voting machines. I'm joined now by a pair of former federal prosecutors, Ellie Honig and Tamadaya Agonga-Williams, who is also senior investigative counsel for the January 6th Congressional Committee and was maybe on air until 2 a.m. with me last <laughs> night. Ellie, let's start with you. I mean, if you look at the 19 people, one of those faces, Mark Meadows, is now already trying to get his case moved from the state court to a federal court. Obviously, that's something we're hearing Trump is also going to try to do. Do you think they'll be successful? It's an interesting and I think important gambit by Mark Meadows, and surely Donald Trump will follow. This body of law goes back to the early 1900s, and it basically says if somebody who was a federal official gets charged criminally by a state or county, as in a DA, then if the conduct relates to your job as a federal official, you can move over to federal court. I think we don't, I think it's a 50-50 chance if he succeeds, but if he does, here's what it means. It means, first of all, he gets a much better jury pool because instead of just drawing from Fulton County, which went 72 to 26% against Donald Trump, now you're drawing from the northern counties of Georgia, some of which went 60, 70% for Donald Trump. But more importantly, if you get into federal court, the next move, if they win, they're going to ask to dismiss on the basis of immunity. They're going to say, as federal officials, we're immune. That's how high the stakes are. But if Trump does that, if yeah. I, am I correct that if he got charged, it would still be state charges, not federal charges? Yes, it would be basically state charges. Even the state prosecutor picked up, moved across the street to the federal courthouse. I mean, obviously, this is something that they would try to potentially appeal. I mean, do you think this is something that could reach the Supreme Court? I would fully expect it to reach, reach the Supreme Court. I think here it is a novel issue, whether President Trump was acting under color of law here. But I think a distinction that's really important here is drawing the line between candidate Trump and President Trump. And what's clear is that committing crimes while being a federal official does not grant you immunity. Just because President Trump was in the White House, he was not free to engage in criminal acts and claim he was doing it because he was president. And drawing that distinction here is going to be key. I mean, what about the fact that you're hearing from people like Mark Meadows' attorney, but also other allies of Trump's online who are kind of uh, having this misleading commentary, cherry picking from this to say, well, you know, placing calls is not illegal. Tweeting is not illegal. Well, like, sure. But right. if you're doing it in furtherance of a crime is the point that the district attorney is making in the indictment. That's what makes it illegal. Exactly. We have to all be, I think, on watch for this technique, which is, and defense lawyers do this. It, it can be an effective tactic. Take one narrow slice of the indictment and say, what's wrong with that, folks? What's wrong with the tweet? What's wrong with making a call? And the prosecutors always come back and say, it's part of the grander conspiracy. It was a necessary part of the conspiracy. It was a necessary way they spread the fraud. It was a necessary way they pressured these officials. So don't fall for that trick of, look at this one thing, who cares? It's the whole picture. Yeah. One person we heard from today, since we were talking about this and reading through this indictment last night, is Rudy Giuliani. And he's kind of making the argument for himself of what he should believe should happen here, in addition to Mark Meadows. The federal statutes say that when you, when you indict a, uh, someone for things they did in federal office, or things that, for example, I did as an agent for someone in federal office, it should be removed to the federal court. 
an agent for someone in a federal? I mean, how does that, I mean, he wasn't being paid by the taxpayers just because Trump put him in charge of those efforts. Is that, could he still have leeway to make that argument? Certainly not. There's just no basis for this argument. Mayor Giuliani, frankly, is just making this up. Just being sent to do something by a candidate for future office does not somehow grant you protection under the statute. It's simply wrong. Okay, so no chance for Rudy Giuliani, you think? I think no chance there. What do you make of Mark Meadows? He is indicted here. He is not indicted by Jack Smith in that investigation into efforts to overturn the election. Do you think Jack Smith is unhappy about this? I mean, does this mess up his plans? Well, it certainly escalates the mystery around Mark Meadows. If Mark Meadows was cooperating with Jack Smith, that could be. We don't know. He's not named in the indictment. He's not one of the co-conspirators. But people suspect he is. Let's let's operate with that. If we assume he is, this indictment by Fonnie Willis blows that up. It is a major problem for Jack Smith because when you have a cooperation deal, the deal is you're going to own up to everything you've done, and I'm going to make sure that you're clear for everything else. Now, if out of left field, we get this new indictment, and now Mark Meadows is looking at state RICO charges, that could be a real problem. The other thing we are learning about Jack Smith's investigation, which just broke a few moments before we got on air, is that when they were seeking access, the federal investigators, to Trump's Twitter account, they were specifically looking for direct messages, apparently of which there were many. It's not clear that those were ones that Trump sent. I mean, what would they be looking for in those direct messages of his? Well, at the core of any criminal criminal case is the defendant's state of mind. Prosecutors are consistently trying to get into what the defendant was thinking to show that he had criminal intent. And here, President Trump still to this day continues to argue that he wasn't acting improperly, that he didn't mean anything to do anything illegal here. So direct messages, when it's not in the public spotlight, his private thoughts, that could be key evidence against him. Yeah. Ellie, what do you make of that? No, I agree. I think, I mean... Donald Trump famously, I mean, you would know, doesn't text or email people, right? But if he's using that DM function, I would want to get right into that. That could be really valuable. Yeah, it seems like something that would be a surprise to a lot of people. A lot of developments, a lot of late nights ahead. So uh, thanks for being here with us. All right. In light of this fourth indictment, some of Trump's 2024 rivals are once again defending him. A few are not mincing words. That includes my next guest, who has personal experience prosecuting racketeering cases like the one Trump is now facing. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is here next. The former president's trials and tribulations extend from the courtroom, well, several of them to the campaign trail. One of his opponents for the Republican nomination also happens to be a former U.S. attorney who has prosecuted RICO cases, this kind of conspiracy charge that Donald Trump is now facing in Georgia in the past. Joining me now, Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas, former U.S. attorney, of course, as we noted, who has prosecuted these types of cases. Good evening, Governor, and thanks for being here. You've now had time to read this indictment. How worried do you think that Trump and these 18 co-defendants should be? Well, I think they're very frustrated that these charges are brought in state court. Uh, They see this as uh, something that's going to be all-consuming. It's going to drag on for some time. So uh, these are serious charges. It's a difficult environment for them. And there's a lot of work to be done. And the biggest challenge, both for the prosecution and the defense, is that there's multiple, multiple uh, defendants. And that complicates the trial in every way. I don't see how this case can be resolved before the election. I think it'll be one of the last ones that will be resolved. And quite frankly, I think the uh, state prosecutor in Georgia should have deferred to uh, Jack Smith 
and the special counsel as they have investigated and pursued the indictment surrounding January 6th. That, from my experience, is what ordinarily happens whenever you have overlapping federal jurisdiction and state jurisdiction. Uh, the federal jurisdiction usually uh, is deferred to from, by the state prosecutor. So you agree with Chris Christie because he, he has said similar, basically, that he thinks the state should have deferred, especially since that other indictment from Jack Smith became came first. But I mean, given that you're saying that you are a former federal prosecutor, I mean, you've worked on this, you've pursued racketeering charges in the past. So what did you make of District Attorney Fonnie Willis's application of what's known as these RICO charges and how this case was ultimately put together? Well, I, I've always thought that the, the call that was made by President Trump uh, to the Secretary of State of Georgia was not a perfect call. It was problematic. It crossed lines that alerts any prosecutor that there's something wrong here. And of course, she's further investigated it and brought these charges my reaction to it is that uh, this would not stand under a federal racketeering charge, but under a state racketeering charges in which the overt acts or the uh, acts that are carried out in furtherance of the racketeering is much broader in state court. And so it is substantive in state court. It should stick in state court in the sense that I don't think it'll be subject to a dismissal. There is a question as whether it could be removed to federal court. Uh, but uh, the uh, it does fit within the Georgia racketeering charges. And Georgia is one of the few states that actually have state RICO uh, statutes. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, most of these are just simply left at the federal level. And they're kind of modeled in Georgia after those federal laws as well. Uh, on this indictment, what we've heard so far from your fellow 2024 challengers, this is a bit of that. I think it's an example uh, of this criminalization of politics. We see the legal system being weaponized against political opponents. That is un-American and unacceptable. You know, Governor, when we hear those comments from Governor DeSantis and Senator Scott, you know, from a lot of Republicans, what we had heard was first, you know, we can't impeach Trump. This should be left to the courts. You know, now he's been indicted. And now suddenly the refrain is how the legal system is being weaponized, that this should be left to voters. But of course, when it was left to voters in the 2020 election, Trump lost that election. He lied about it. He tried to overturn it. And that is why we are here. I mean, where we are tonight. I mean, how do you how do you even debate a circular argument like the one that you hear from your fellow Republicans on that? Well, it's hard to hold anyone accountable for their actions uh, with that argument. And here I've always said that uh, Donald Trump is morally responsible for what happened on January 6th. We're testing the court system as whether he's criminally responsible. And the facts and the law will govern that. I'm here in Iowa, and what I see from the voters is that, one, uh, they're totally uh, overwhelmed by the number of indictments and the chaos that surrounds these charges. It divides our country. Some say... Uh, they should never have been brought these charges, that it's politicization of the Justice Department. Others say it should have been brought a long time ago. We're divided on the issue. And so the first action is that it's going to be the voters who will decide. But at the same time, uh, what I'm seeing is that uh, the voters are frustrated. They believe that Donald Trump has broken their trust. He has misled voters. And that's what he has to be held accountable for when he misled his supporters about the 2020 election and that it was stolen from him when he knew better. Of course, a big question is 
Next week is the debate. We are hearing that Donald Trump is not expected to show up. A big question for you is whether or not you will be there. You've met the polling threshold. You have not yet met the minimum donors. Please tell me if that's different. I mean, where, where will you be, Governor, next Wednesday night? I plan on being on the debate stage there in Milwaukee. Uh, you're right. Uh, we've met the polling threshold. We haven't met the donor threshold of 40,000. How close but are we you? got, to, what, five days still? left to do it, getting closer every day. I won't give you the exact number, but I like the trend line in which we're uh, moving toward that goal. So uh, I need everybody's help to get there because you need my voice on that debate stage. Former Arkansas Governor Asa and Hutchinson. Asa, Go ahead. Asa2024.com. That right. can help me get on the debate stage. Thank you. We will see if you are there next Wednesday night. Governor, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. Great to be with you. The January 6th committee laid out essentially what appears to be a roadmap for prosecuting Trump. Now that there is another election interference indictment in Georgia, we're going to speak to a former member of that congressional committee, Congressman Adam Schiff, how he sees this fourth indictment against Trump next. House Republicans jumping to Donald Trump's defense in the latest indictment that he's facing, saying the new charges against him they believe are politically motivated. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says President Biden has weaponized the government, he claims, against Trump, and that District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who led those charges you saw last night, is following his lead. Joining me now, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, a former member of the January 6th House Select Committee, also running for Senate in California. Congressman, uh, thanks for being here tonight. This is now the fourth time that Trump has been indicted. I know we hear from Democrats, obviously, every time that those indictments have come down. But do you think voters have already made up their minds? Are they desensitized to these indictments? Uh, I think that there are still a great many Americans who are going to be very interested to watch these trials. And I'm particularly grateful that in Georgia, that trial is likely to be televised. Uh, I've been urging the Judicial Conference uh, and led a letter to uh, that conference with dozens of my colleagues urging that the federal proceedings be televised because I think it's going to be enormously important that those people who have an open mind get to watch, that it's not filtered uh, in one way or another. Uh, so I, I, I applaud the hard work uh, of the grand jury uh, in Fulton County, uh, the willingness to go forward, uh, and I'm glad the American people are going to get to watch at least one of these trials uh, and I'm particularly also uh, struck by how much the Georgia indictment really tracks the work of the January 6th committee, and in particular the hearing uh, that I led. And uh, it's, I, I think, uh, very similar to the federal January 6th indictment uh, in tracking the work of our committee. First on the cameras, you did sign that letter asking, you know, the judge for the January 6th indictment to, uh, to allow cameras to be in the room. Obviously, in Georgia, it's different than in a federal courtroom. I mean, how much more of an impact do you think that will have? And do you think that will change voters' minds on this? You know, I think there are two important impacts. The, the first is uh, in the federal system, and it, it may be very well the same in Fulton County, the, the president's lawyers can go out on the courthouse steps every day after the proceedings and misrepresent what takes, took place inside. Uh, prosecutors, on the other hand, do their speaking in court. Uh, so there would be a very strong asymmetric uh, disadvantage uh, for the prosecutors if the proceedings are not televised. But more than that, this is an historic set of cases. Uh, and the country should be able to watch and form their own opinion of the credibility of the witnesses, of the strength of the evidence, 
if they only see this black box uh, in which a verdict emerges in one direction or the other, it will be hard for them to have confidence uh, in what took place inside. So I think it's equally important, maybe more important in the federal case, but it would require a great departure from their usual rules. Yeah, it seems very uh, unlikely there. Your hearings were televised. They showcased the role that Mark Meadows played in those efforts by Trump to stay in power. I mean, what did you make of looking at this 98-page indictment, seeing his name on the first page as a co-defendant? Well, the the absence of his name or the suggestion of his name as an unindicted co-conspirator potentially in the federal indictment raised a lot of profound questions about whether he was cooperating. Uh, Those questions still continue. uh, But certainly, if you're going to lay out all all the participants, all the facts, uh, in the way that this Fulton County indictment does, all 95 pages of it, uh, then he's going to be included uh, because he was very much a participant in what they've charged as a racketeering enterprise. Uh, and one of the things that also struck me is how well these facts fit that Georgia statute, which is normally used for organized crime. But here you had kind of an, a sprawling organized criminal effort to overturn the election. Uh, and tying in uh, all of these elements, showing how they fit together, uh, showing how some worked independently, but nonetheless were part of the overall scheme to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power, makes that George indictment pretty powerful. Well, given the fact that Mark Meadows is not named in the federal indictment, there are questions in Trump's orbit pretty, by pretty much everyone who covers this of whether or not he's cooperating. Of course, we can't say for sure. But if he is, and Jack Smith is relying on him, and that could cause some complications here, I mean, do you believe that the state should have deferred to the federal prosecution given the federal indictment was already issued? You know, I was listening to your discussion with Governor Hutchinson, and I, I certainly agree that in general, local prosecutors will often defer to federal prosecutors, uh, sometimes because the federal government has more resources to bear, sometimes because the penalties are stiffer. But here, I have to say, Georgia was fully within its rights to move forward because the federal government took so long. Uh, In many respects, not only was the Congress ahead of the Justice Department in its investigation for a long time, but so was Georgia. Uh, And now it's true, the feds ultimately sought the indictment first, but uh, having put all of that effort uh, in, I can see why uh, Georgia prosecutors wanted to bring it before the grand jury. There were serious violations of Georgia law. Uh, it still may be, though, that Georgia ultimately says, hey, special counsel, you go first. Uh, we don't want to have any conflict, uh, you know, in terms of scheduling witnesses, testimony, etc. I still wouldn't be surprised if that's the case, provided that the federal judge keeps that case on track. Well, yeah, Fannie Willis said last night she's seeking a trial date within six months, but she also would not answer when my colleague Sarah Murray asked if she had been coordinating with Jack Smith. When you look at at all of the indictments that is facing Trump here, which one do you think should go first and how soon? Well, you know, I think if it were proceeding most logically, you would have the federal January 6th indictment go first. It's the most serious set of charges. uh, And I think the federal government has greater resources uh, to bring that case to trial. Uh, So I would favor that. Uh, And, you know, I think that... uh, there, there is also a question about the timing for the, the Mar-a-Lago prosecution. That doesn't pose the same conflict with Georgia in terms of witnesses' timing. But I, I expect that none of these cases are going to go on uh, at all simultaneously. The judges in the various jurisdictions are going to be mindful that uh, these, the attorneys for the president need to be able to focus and prepare on discrete cases. 
Um, but it'll be worked out. Uh, and it, but if you know if it were proceeding, I think in the most logical way, um, the federal government would go forward with the January six charges, the most serious to date. We'll see what that order looks like. Congressman Adam Schiff, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. And up next, we're going to turn back to Maui, where the death toll is expected to keep climbing as the emotional toll is also growing. So many families tonight are still waiting on word of their loved ones. They are seeking answers. How did Lahaina become a death trap? We'll get an update from Hawaii's governor in just a moment. President Biden says he and the First Lady plan to visit Maui, quote, as soon as they can. As officials say, the death toll there is going to potentially double in the next 10 days. Right now, tonight, it stands at 99 people who have lost their lives. Hawaii is launching a formal review of its emergency response after the siren system, which I should note is the largest in the world, was silent as the fires spread. Several firefighters have also told The New York Times that fire hydrants ran dry as they were trying to use them. And tonight, the state's main electric provider is also facing a new lawsuit alleging that its power lines caused the fires. Joining me now to discuss is Hawaii Governor Josh Green. Governor, thank you for being here tonight. I know that you have been working on this. You have some news for us today. What is the latest on the ground in Hawaii? Well, thank you, and, and thank you for your prayers. Uh, our fatality count is at 101 now. Uh, we've completed 27% of the search and rescue as far as territory goes, and we now have 185 search and rescue individuals on the ground plus 20 dogs. So we're going to push through the recovery much more quickly now. Hopefully by the end of this weekend, much of it will be done. So that's one thing. Uh, also, I'll be making a major announcement here uh, locally, but I'll, I'll share it with you now also nationally. We will be opening the road. I've ordered the road to be opened uh, to connect all of Maui again so that all of our people can begin to recover. I was with my chief of staff and team yesterday in uh, West Maui. And for instance, we were with a pregnant woman who is uh, seven and a half months pregnant, beautiful person, and we need to get her care. And so we're opening the road. It'll be open from 6 a.m. every morning until 10 p.m. for everyone, uh, beginning tomorrow with some nuances here. Uh, but it's a partnership with the mayor and our incident commander. So having that road open will make it more possible to get uh, some people's lives back intact. Of course, the incident area, the impact area will be off limits because that has to be protected. And that's with my National Guard. We've also set up 2000 homes for people uh, between uh, donations and hotel rooms and Airbnb will now be able to house virtually everyone who is impacted. Uh, we're already well on our way with hundreds of people into homes. So we're beginning to heal, but we're also having our hearts broken day by day as we see the loss of life. Mm -hmm. I know opening that road is going to be incredibly welcome news for a lot of people there who are watching tonight and hearing that update, um, hoping to get access to, to where their homes were. But on the update that you just gave us, you said that the fatalities have risen from 99 people to now 101. You said 27 percent of the area has been searched. Obviously, 27 is an improvement from where it was, but that still means there's a lot left to go. What, is, what does that mean for the death toll, do you think? Well, the, a lot of the fatalities occurred on the road uh, down by the sea, not the road that we're opening up today. And um, I think many of the fatalities that we'll ultimately discover, a high percentage will be from there. Uh, but now that we go into the houses, we're not sure what we'll see. We're hopeful and praying that it's not large, large numbers, uh, but it was a thousand degree heat 
traveling at 60 miles per hour. And that is probably a segue in some ways to other things you're interested in and concerned about, which is why, for instance, alarms uh, did not ring or why there wasn't enough uh, time to get people out. But yeah. we think that the speed of that fire will have overcome houses. And so uh, we just simply will know when we get to those those places. And, and that's what I've been sharing with the president and everyone. Uh, we're going methodically through this uh, and we're going through it safely out of respect and for the dignity of our people here. Yeah. And I know you spoke to President Biden today and I do have a question about the sirens, but just quickly on what you were talking about there on the 101 people. I mean, one of the most gut-wrenching parts of this is that so far only four people who have died have been able to be identified. That means there's a lot of people with loved ones who, who are missing who don't have answers. When do you think you'll be able to have more answers for people who are still searching for their loved ones? Well, day by day, it will increase. We have a genetics team coming in and we have extra support that way. A lot of this, uh, and, and this is very different than what it was like when I was working in the hospital as an ER person. It, this is, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult to recognize individuals. So uh, if you're lucky in a circumstance like this, you get to see fingerprints. So um, it's very hard, but that's why what we're doing is we're asking all of our uh, our loved friends and family in the area who have any concern to go get swabbed at the family support center so that we can match people genetically. Uh, this is much like you see um, in a war zone or what we saw with 9-11. Uh, this is has similarities to those things. And co- of course, totally different circumstance causes and, and reasons for a fire, but uh, that's what you have to do. So over the course of the next several weeks, we'll be able to confirm who passed away, but it's going to be very difficult going. Yeah. And I mean, you said it could take weeks and just to hear that comparison to 9-11, I know is such an unimaginable situation. And you did mention the sirens. I mean, we've heard from residents who said they didn't feel like they got enough time to evacuate in part because they didn't hear sirens going off. You told Wolf, my colleague Wolf, that those sirens were immobilized. What does that, what does that mean? Well, couple things. So just for historical perspective, the sirens were typically used for tsunamis or hurricanes. To my knowledge, at least I never experienced them uh, in use for fires. There may be some reasons for that. Uh, Sometimes sirens uh, send people up mountain and going up the mountain during a fire can be problematic. Going up the mountain when there's a wave is what you have to do. but the sirens, some were broken, and we're investigating that, like I shared uh, with all of you. You know, we are a transparent state. So, you know, I have immediately asked my attorney general to do a full review of everything decisions, policies, policies on water, and then, of course, the sirens. Uh, a lot of people would have, I'm sure, at least been alerted more quickly, and that is important. Normally, we communicate in Hawaii by. Uh, essentially person to person, uh, coconut wireless, they, they joke, uh, connection where everyone hears immediately about anything major if a car accident happens or, uh, a drowning occurs or a wonderful moment in Hawaii. Uh, but the cell phones were immobilized. The power lines were down and we had no service. So there was no communication and that made it difficult to communicate back to the fire folks. I believe what happened was the fire had Um, been going on earlier in the day into the late afternoon and then was put out. 
And then, and I spoke to individuals yesterday in West Maui when I was there visiting with the survivors, they said the fire then began again after the fire uh, fighters had to go to fight other fires. And, you know, had, had that fire been put out again at that moment, we would not have had the tragedy, but they were fighting other fires by that point. So the, the truth is it just, it was a very difficult situation and the winds sent that fire spiraling through the town. A lot of questions I know that you also want answers to. Governor Josh Green, I know you got a press conference coming up. We are thinking of your state right now. Thank you for, for providing that uh, us that update, not only on the numbers here and what we're looking at. I mean, these are people, of course, behind those numbers, and everyone remembers that. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for caring about us. And we'll be right back in just a moment. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.